0: G'day and welcome to Authorised, the podcast where writers speak. My name's Kevin Hillier. Two very good books. It's another double-banger episode of uh, Authorised and uh, Two Great Authors. Two books that I'm sure uh, would find a a good spot in a a Christmas stocking or a good spot in your holiday reading. Uh, Certainly uh, a couple of very entertaining and engaging books. Rod Willis has written one called Ringside. Steve Marshall's book is called The Bonobo Gene, Why Are Men So Dumb? And uh, though The Bonobo Gene may sound scientific, trust me, it's not. And uh, thanks again to our fabulous podcast partners having some time off over Christmas and New Year, but they'll be back early in 2024, and that's when they can help you sort out your financial goals for the new year. So if you've been uh, sitting around working out uh, you know that your money isn't working for you, or it's not doing as much as you want it to do, or it's not in the areas you want it to be in, or you don't understand some areas of uh, the way your finances are put together – Give them a call, have a chat, and they'll uh, they'll be only too happy to help you out. Simple as giving them a call on 9974 8333 or go to their website, cscg.com.au. You will not regret making that phone call. Rod Willis had uh, 32 years in a managerial capacity with Cold Chisel. Now, that in itself is uh, is a circus. Uh, he's written a book. It's called Ringside. It details not only Rod's time with, uh, with Cold Chisel, which is such a, a massive part of his life, but before all that, he went to England, jumped on a boat with the Twilights, uh, not as a member of the band, I might point out, uh, but just as a bloke looking for a fun and adventure overseas and uh, where his life was going to take him. It brought him back. It brought him back to Cold Chisel and it brought it, uh, a fabulous story that you'll read all about now, Ringside by Rod Willis. And Then we'll talk to Steve Marshall about his book, The Bonobo Gene. But first up, it's Rod Willis. Ringside, obviously, the name coming from the, the seats you had for the Beatles, I believe. Pretty much so. I, I mean, to be
1: fair, the the ringside name came John Watson, who who ended up managing after I left. He ended up managing um, with John O'Donnell uh, Chisel. He, we we remained very close friends, you know. And he said, "Oh, you've got to call it ringside because ringside was the the name of the the last tour that we ever did, or together as such, you know." But, yes, it, it pretty much sparked from that. Well, it came from the fact is that I looked at it and I go, my life has been on the ringside <laughs> when I think about it, yeah. you know. And, and also with the Beatles there, you know, at Sydney Stadium, I went back and I looked at the um, photos of the Beatles at the Sydney Stadium and so whatever age I was, how young, you know. Um, <clears throat> and lo and behold, above the door, because I remember it was like an old boxing arena, yeah. and it had ringside. And I thought, "Hey, all, all, all—it's all—all the uh, what stars are aligning, and the planets are <laughs> aligning. This has got to be it. And it just made sense, you know. It's a great—it's a great title, and it really does signify what I've done my whole life, you know. Been on the ringside, you yeah. know."
0: And and let's be honest. If you if you equate it to TV ringside, the boxing uh, television program that we watched as kids, uh, there was a bit yeah. of that, there was a bit of that going on in cultures as well. <laughs> Plenty of that, yeah. <laughs> right, it's it's funny, a, you know. It's a very easy book to read. Was it an easy book for you to write? Because it's your story, and you had to go to places that you probably uh, you know didn't really want to go and, and yeah, explore. At times, to yeah. was it hard? Yeah, um, yeah at, at certain times, yes. Yeah, quite
1: cathartic. Um, I mean, initially, I was probably looking at writing a book about Cold Chisel and Icehouse and, you know, the bands that I'd worked with. And then, and then, of course, I started, I go, well, I can't tell this story without telling the backstory. And, of course, you start going back and then you go, right, okay, okay, there's only one way. We start from, and I wrote my birth date down, and then I wrote the next year and I wrote the next year. And then you start to fill in uh, things uh, you know, and then of course you get to certain stages in your in your life, and there's things, but especially when you were young, you know, um, like I went through, you know, um, sexual harassment and yeah. you know that kind of thing, you know. And most people probably leave those out. And I thought, oh, I, you know what? These sort of things are are, are, are suppressed as such, and, and people don't relate to them, oh, it wouldn't happen to me or it wouldn't happen to that guy, you know. Oh. So I, I kept those sort of things in. And, you know, I, as you know, like, you know, I came from that, from reading it, you know, I came from a dysfunctional family. Yep. And, you know, I thought it was really, I, I didn't know, I kept whether it was going to be left in there in, in the end result because I just wrote from the heart as such and what, and what I remembered and how they, how they felt. And then when I first had somebody have a read of it, uh, which was the editor as such, Jeff After, who's written many, many books, like yeah, 30-odd no books, Jeff. you know. He said, no, you've got to keep all of this in. It's all really important. And it's funny because he was the one that when, the, when I first – Spoke to the publishers. They were kind of going, "Oh, can you sort of like, uh, you know, make the early part of being overseas and all that kind of thing a little bit smaller as such?" And you know, because the big bang is going to be chisel and all that. And I was like, kind of going, "Oh, well, yeah, okay," because you know, it's my first book and I don't know. And you know, <laughs> and it was Jeff that really went to battle for me and said to them straight away, "You're crazy, you know." Without this, it don't the whole story. And I found, funnily enough, even talking to radio station like 4BC this morning, they were, they, they talked to me, they said, you know, about growing up and, 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 you know, seeing the Beatles and, and moving to England when I was 18 years of age and then working with Fleetwood Max and, you know, all of the different bands that I work with and then going to America and traveling in America at that time, you know, um, so i i I, you know I'm really glad that that is all in the book that it's you know 'cause I think it sort of tells a greater story and, and um you try and make it entertaining that's that's what I tried to do, and you know one of the things that Dom said to me because originally I was going to get an author to do it, you know'cause i'm I'm not a great writer, you know he's a guy that's failed math three times kind of thing you know so and, and English wasn't that far behind <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> And uh, I said to Don, I want to write a book. And he said, yeah, great idea. You're the only one that can write it, you know. And I went, oh, I'll get somebody to do it. And he goes, no, 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 no. You've got to write it. Yeah. And it's sort of a bit like when Jimmy said to me about reforming the band, you know, and I said, oh, yeah, well, it'd be great. And, and um, it's up to you. And, and then he turned to me and he said, no, no, it's up to you. And I'm uh, like, oh, okay. So, yeah, you know, as Don said, it's got to be in your voice. Yeah. That, that's the most important thing.
0: Yeah. The I think the early days and reading about uh, your early days uh are fascinating because there, there there was a certain sort of person who was going to be able to handle a band like Cold Chisel and, and you know make it successful and make it work and and ride the highs and lows of that and your your story made you that person uh, you know. I know. You're, I know yeah. you are expelled from kindergarten at the age of three, and you should be, you should <laughs> yeah. be ashamed of that. But <laughs> the other stuff was, uh, you know, I mean, it's it shaped you as a human being. Whether it was, you know, your surfy days, or whether it was your mum being yeah. a private, you know, Australia's first female private eye. All those little bits and pieces uh, made you into the person that was able to handle what you finished up doing
1: well you you're absolutely correct i mean it's in hindsight when I look back at it sometimes I think, how the hell didn't I just walk away from it but yes you're right that that gave me that resolve to to be able to deal with it uh, um uh, deal with things on a day to day level, especially with you know an uh, an explosive i mean when I say that i mean I think all bands uh have issues as such. From my experience talking to many managers, and, and you know, uh, Australian and in, international, I, I don't think I've met one that that has said, "Oh, <laughs> it was a cakewalk." You know, <laughs> no. I think I think every one of them is scarred for life. So yeah, I think that, I think the early days and. You know, with, with um, certainly with bands like UFO, who were crazy bands. I think that sort of like, I threw me in the, in the deep end very early in the piece, you know. yeah. And, and working from a, like, you know, I started off as a roadie, driving and, yep. you know, traveling and pumping and gear into venues and that kind of thing, and then building myself up, and then eventually I became a tour manager. So I, I was sort of equipped in a way. Because uh, the tour manager on the road is like a manager. It's dealing with all of the hotels and, you know, all the logistical side of things.
0: Yeah. The uh, the sheep husbandry uh, certificate that you have, <laughs> it's not, not, so, not something you've had to call on a, a lot over the years, thank goodness.
1: I had beautiful hands when I did work <laughs> for it <them.
0: laughs> No, it's
1: true. I remember when I was, like, at school, you know, like, and I was at a agricultural school, of course, and, We'd learn to sort the wool and all that. And and I remember shaking hands with the the teacher. And I can always remember he had these softest hands. And, of course, you know, I was used to men with sort of, you know, working outdoors and all that kind of stuff. And it wasn't until I started doing the dealing with wool that you realize because, you know, you're dealing with lanolin. That's what that's what it is, you know. <laughs> it's, it's but I don't, you know. I sort of, of say in the book about that. I, why I ended up at a, because at I get asked quite a bit, why did you end up at an agricultural school? And I sort of think the only thing I can think of is like that. I was kind of obsessed with Smiley at that time, the, yeah. the movie Smiley, you know, with Chips Rapidy and and uh, Colin and Col- Peterson, and Colin, Colin Peterson, you yeah. know, who, who who we crossed paths with. I mean, apart from his wife working at Warner's. That's right. You know, Joanne, yeah, who happened right. to be, you know, Epstone's secretary yes. and the, and the uh, keeper of, of his secrets. It's funny how we crossed. You know, and when, even when I worked with a band called Jonathan Kelly, you know, Colin had actually managed the band before uh, I came along. I, I wasn't actually managing, I was just roading for them. But, you know, there was this crossing of paths over the years. But that's probably the reason why I ended up, you know, wanting to go on the land and then but music was was fighting. A winning battle.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you've had a very good grounding in it. I mean, seeing the Beatles live, seeing the Rolling Stones live when you're still a teenager—that—that that obviously had a big—and uh, then jumping jumping on a boat in uh, what was it, 1968, and and going to England. No, 66. It was
1: 66
0: yep. with with the the Twilights in the uh, on the same boat uh, going over. Oh yeah, that, they'd won the Hoadley's Battle of the Sounds. I mean, that 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 uh, that's a big step. That's a massive step.
1: I, I can remember you know and I talk about it in the book you know like I'm saying goodbye to my parents and of course from, you know the 60s we were like a world away from you know the northern hemisphere a world away i mean oh, you know there were people that went there but it wasn't like the common thing that happens now and and i remember saying goodbye to my parents at the at the bottom and you know of the gangplank and walking up there and you know thinking
2: shit
1: I'm, you know i'm I'm going to the other side of the world and then I look up and there's three guys that I look at and I go I know who they are that's the twilight <laughs> and I, did. I didn't know to so of course you know uh, it's funny I only was talking to Glenn Glenn Shorek about well I don't know a month ago because I had to ring him about something and, and we were having a laugh about it because I've known him since that time 1966 you know oh. but we, we got to know each other and that was like wonderful so we're on the boat they're 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 contracted to play. I don't know. Let's say two or three times a week. And there's a, and there's a you know myself and a similar kind of age group people. And so it was just wonderful. It was like having was like having cold chisel uh, as your private you know in your private <laughs> ballroom so to speak. You know, and anywhere we, we were having fun and whatever and visiting all these new places and being best of buddies with them. So yeah. Uh, yeah, it was it was a it was a wonderful thing. It was probably better than having Luigi and and, and <laughs> Giuseppe playing, you know, a Solomero in the you know, all the way to yes. to, to to England, you know.
0: With uh, with sitting out and 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 going through the, the when we talk about the chisel days and and how that all yep. started for you in, in uh, you know that late part of the seventies, your memories of that were did did they just all flood back or did you have to kind of uh, did you did you need prompts or did you go back and well, did you keep a journal of any description back yeah, in those yeah. days? I,
1: well, I kept diaries, but yeah, but the, the, the diaries were purely for business, but it gave me an insight into what was going on at the time, but I also kept all my notepads. Ah. Now, that was fine, except I never wrote on the notepads, you know, 12th of August, 1978 or something, you know, so I had to go through these pads and try and work out, and I'm reading them going, okay, oh, okay, this, this is the 8th, 8th of September, 1979. Okay, um, so I kind of, that helped. I had given Michael Lawrence an access a few years earlier to all my uh, you know, information and whatever, and he put a chronology together, which oh, still exists. That. Yeah, still exists. And that was very helpful in going back. And of course, he, he was getting the stuff off me, and then I ended up getting the stuff off him. If you know, what I, mean. you know when, I, I call it the Bible. Gee, mm-hmm. I have got to get the Bible and have a look at what's going on. In fact, I've, I've got it like sitting about two two feet away from me at the moment. You know, uh, I still look at it. You know, uh, as such. But yeah, mainly through I was able to reconstruct the timeline. I also, when Dirty Pool folded. I kept all of the booking sheets uh, and so I could go back through them and and, and also be able to work out uh, what the sort of money the band was getting paid at that time because, you know, it's fairly important because, you, you know, you've got to keep these things in perspective that, you yeah. know, at times uh, it's a bit like the story I say about Chris Murphy who went on to manage in excess and whatever and was a very successful agent when I first got associated with Cold and I remember talking to him about, you know, saying how, you know, oh, this culture is all such a great band. He said, oh, yeah, they're a, they're a good band. They're a good bar band. But, you know, they'll maybe be bigger than Kevin Boric. <laughs> well, of course, I, I don't look at that as dissing Kevin because Kevin was earning $1,500 a show and, and Culture's was earning $150 a show, you know. So, it's a, you know, it wasn't having a go at Kevin. It's just like that was a fact at the time, you yeah. know, and...
0: That's amazing. When you, when you talk about cold chisel and you talk about them, you know, living on couches and, and not having anywhere to, to, to live and the success that they had, I mean, I know that changed as, as, it, as they went along, but...
1: In those early days, the adult in the room was Don. You <laughs> could kind of rely on Don and that's why it ended up really, in reality, it was very much a teamwork. Don and myself worked together. We both had the visions. Don... Don had the vision of what the band was musically and all of that about. Yep. I guess I had a vision of what I thought it was and what I believed was where the market was for the band, <clears throat> that kind of thing. You know,
0: we we talked about you know all the planets lined up for the for the name of the book being Ringside, but all the planets never really lined up for Chisel internationally and and. Uh, Australian music lovers sit back and scratch their head and wonder why that yep. happened, but when you read the book, you'll understand exactly wh- why it didn't
1: happen. Yeah, I I try to explain it in the in the book. And, you know, initially you can blame the songs. You can say, okay, they didn't release the right singles. Yep. But then again, you know, it was very difficult for the band. Like a lot of people say, oh, well, NXS went and, and, and sort of lived in America as such, you know. Yeah, quite right. But in excess, weren't where Cold Chisel was at that time. You know, they were still a big band as such. They they had some success, but nothing like Cold Chisel. Mm. Cold Chisel by that time was a a household name. And, you know, that was my intention to make them a household name. I mean, you know, one of the first things that I said when we went out on our own with Dirty Pool was, I want people in Mount Isa to know who Cold Chisel is. Not, you know, not this sort of centric, sort of city-centric thing, you know, that seemed to exist in a lot of ways. I remember I first said this to an Asian, okay, I want them to play at at, um, Orange, I think it was, because I'd seen that a few years before that Sherbet had played out there. And and actually, in point of fact, the guy actually said to me, mate, Nobody's played out there since Sherbert played. You know? <laughs> and of course, you know, at the time, before we sort of formed our own conglomerate with Dirty Pool and ran, ran an agency through a management company, uh, the agents really had the power. And of course, power was good, except the fact is they also made money. Yep. So therefore, they didn't really need the band to go out and play for a, a lesser fee out at Orange where they could, they could generate... You know, a good return in the city, and and you know, I I just made sure that we we continued to try and get to as many places as possible, and I know in the end result that paid dividend, because I think that you know, I mean, it's not, I know it'd be silly to say it, because of course everybody, you know. I don't think there's a person in Australia that doesn't know the name Cole Chisel. Yeah, absolutely. You no, know? absolutely. I mean, there's a, sometimes there's that sort of con- confusion between Jimmy Barnes and Cole Chisel, but that's, you know, that's just – I'd rather have it that way than not have it that yeah.
0: way. You know? Even though, let's be honest, you did think Cole Chisel was a shitty name at the start, didn't you? Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> true story.
1: Yeah. yeah, my brother. You know, I'm looking for bands. I'm back in Sydney. I've got a pregnant wife and I'm like, oh, God, there be – Living with my father, it was. Father's office was in Walker Street in North Sydney. I used to go in there every day. And I use that analogy just counting paper clips, you know, yeah. waiting for somebody to call. Go out at night with my younger brother and troll around looking for bands. And it was never, I mean, it wasn't like I didn't like the bands that I saw, but I was looking for something that I felt was unique. My brother said to me, Oh, there's this great band from Adelaide, young band from Adelaide. He basically said that you know nobody seems to be interested in them at all. And I remember sort of saying, "Oh, what's their name?" Not not for any reason other than you know maybe they'd I'd seen their name written somewhere. And he said, "Cultures on." I remember going, "God, that's like the dreadful name." <laughs> you know, it was just I, I just didn't conjure up anything that you know. Anyway, I he said, "Come and have a look at them." So. That we did go and went down to Checkers, which was this sort of dingy club that that actually was a quite a big club at one point of time uh, in near actually in Chinatown, or such, you know. Yeah. And um, the band came on stage, and you know, as I sort of described it, there was three men and a dog, but in reality, there was no dog. Yes. Yeah. Um, this band came on, scruffy-looking, um, you know, young guys. The singer automatically turned his back on the audience. I said, well, this is a good start, so to speak. <laughs> and then suddenly the piano started to roll, you know, like Jerry Lee. kind And I'm going, whoa, because I love Jerry Lee. You know, I love that. You know, that's kind of soul and rock is kind of my bedrock as such. And, you know, the piano, they, the, the rhythm section kicked in. And I'm going, Jesus, th- these guys can play. And, and then this voice came out. And I was like, "Whoa, you know," because I'd used to blue shouters and whatever. But the, you know, the only thing I can kind of compare it with was when I first heard Stevie Winwood sing.
2: Yeah,
1: I thought it was so unique, and 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 that's what I felt when I first heard Jim sing. You know, oh my God, it's so unique. And then I started questioning myself. I mean, if I'm thinking they're really good, where are, where are the people? Mm. Where are the train spotters? Where are they? you know, where are the... You know, because I came out of England. I'd spent time in England. I'd seen it. I'd seen Led Zeppelin, right? I'd seen The Cream. I'd seen The Cream before they really hit. I'd seen Pink Floyd when they first started, you know? And, you know, you knew by the, the crowds that would turn, you'd turn up and whatever. It was, like, generated either through the music papers or whatever or just word of mouth and stuff, you know? My first band that I saw was a band called The Move, yeah. and And, you know, they were just... Basically started and and they uh, and you know the crowd was was and I read about it in the paper in the music paper and and you know the crowd was like all the way down Wardour Street but there was nothing for all it was just like a couple of people hanging around a couple of girls dancing on the dance floor and whatever but I thought that you know um, they've got something they've really got something
0: yeah. Uh, there was no doubt about that. The book details the breakup of the band, that that uh, what is now one of the most celebrated moments in Australian music history, with the Countdown Awards in '81, <laughs> um, which is a great story that people should read. Uh, there, it's full of great stories. Right, it's been a colourful life that you've led to this to this stage. It has, it has. Sometimes I have
1: to step back. I guess it's only when I talk to people like yourself, and well, sometimes yes. Just- just ordinary punters, you know, they, they either find out something about you, um, you know, and that, it's kind of what they say. Wow, what a life you've lived. And, you know, I just think, oh, yeah, yeah, it's been pretty good. It's been it's, uh, And then when, you know, writing the book, I guess I felt a lot more like, yeah, you know, I could see. You know, And that's what I sort of actually felt at the time when I'm writing the book okay, I've seen a lot of these things, I've been there, I've done that, I've got to include these in the book. I want people to sort of like feel the same kind of vibe that I had when I saw Led Zeppelin and, you know, when I saw Cream and when I saw Pink Floyd or when I, when I was in the same, same dressing room as Muddy Waters. Like, wow, you know, this is great history. So I, I wanted to make sure that all of those sort of kind of stories are in the book, you know.
0: See, you had me at Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> I was. <laughs> when the first famous person that you meet in the world is Alfred Hitchcock, I reckon you off to a flyer. Yeah, that's a true story, too, isn't it? Yeah, that's great, you know. Yeah, because dad worked at MGM Films,
1: you know, before he yep. started in television, became a television executive, but he worked. And I can't even remember, you know, because we, we used to, because dad worked at MGM we got three passes into all the movies. So I think the only thing could be that mum was taking me in there to to go to the movies or something and then we went to see dad. And, um, you know, I, I got... It, dad with television, you know, in those very early days when he yeah. worked for Channel 7. I used to get trotted out to to, to, to be the, uh, the, the the kid that was, you know, uh, on hand to, to meet people and the Captain Fortune show, like, we used to... My brother and my sister; used to, we get dragged on as the, the obligatory um, hunters, so to speak. You know, so it was—it was kind of funny doing meeting all of these sort of people. But yeah, you're right, Alfred Hitchcock. That I tell you, Kevin. There's two things: Alfred Hitchcock and Dad did Maurice Chevalier, oh. and apparently, I only found out years it. I've got his autograph, rather. That's you know. And apparently, Maurice Chevalier was like uh, very well known for not signing autographs. So I was—I've still got my autobi- autograph book that my dad had, and it's got Elizabeth Taylor and all these sort of people, you know, Frank Sinatra.
0: So goodness me! And being on a boat and meet, meeting Tony Bennett too—that would have been—that uh, would have been nice.
1: Oh, yeah, that was so like, cool. You know, I remember you know seeing him sitting there because it was the Paul Young tour. We would brought Paul Young yeah. out. And- and, um c b s at the time of course a sony you know they they do the obligatory boat trips around uh, and and i'm still to this day you know the the sketch that he was doing uh, i am figuring that it pretty well is the painting that is that he did this in the you know the uh, famous place in um, in new york you oh, know right, okay. so he was a, he was a lovely guy you know like it just i just I said do you mind if i sit down and he said yeah great sit down and we had a chat and he was just doodling away there with that so I didn't know he was an artist the years afterwards that yeah. was part of the thing you know I thought he was just like sketching and just because he wasn't really like relating to the rock and rollers that were you know um, and, 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 you know drinking drinking uh, CBS's uh, bar too, you
0: know. <laughs> As you did. As, as, <laughs> as one did. As, as, as everyone did. did. Um, as we all did, uh, yeah. Right, it's, it's a great book, mate. It's, it's a lovely read. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed reading and I'm sure people will love getting a copy of it and having a read about uh, about the life and times of you and Cold Chisel and Ice House and, uh, and all the things that happened in between. Congratulations on the book, mate. Well done. Thank you very much, Kevin. Really appreciate it, mate. It's a terrific book. I'm sure you're going to enjoy reading it over the holiday period. Ringside by Rod Willis. Uh, Good on you, Rod. Well done. Thanks for joining us on the program. Steve Marshall is a bloke I worked with in radio many, many years ago and I've watched uh, him in his career, which has gone through television and a whole lot of other areas as well, publicity and all sorts of areas. And now he's written a book. It's called The Bonobo Gene. It is hysterically funny. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this chat to explain exactly what the book's all about. Meet the author, Steve Marshall. Congratulations on the book. What took you so long to uh, to come up with a book? With all the things you've done in your uh, extensive uh, you know, show business career over the years, Steve Marshall, why did a book take so long?
3: Well, Kev, it's, um, it's one of those things, yeah, you know, um, I've always sort of had it in the back of my mind. I'd love to write a book, and, and I tend to say everybody has a book in them, and, and more often than not, that's where it should stay, <laughs> you know, but uh, – when it got down we were in lockdown I thought well you know I'm stuck at home with you know two teenage boys who who are supposedly studying and uh, I didn't realize until then that just how important to the educational process the, the PlayStation obviously is <laughs> so uh, I thought um, I thought there's um, the time to, to, to maybe put something down on paper so um, I, I thought uh, some sort of semi amusing memoir of 30-odd years in the media, or, or as you very kindly call it, a showbiz career, yeah. um, um, might, might you know, be fairly interesting. So I did that and gave it to a publisher, and he said, um, he said, "Oh look, you know, it's not a proper memoir. You know, a memoir is not, not just a, a collection of funny anecdotes. You know, you need a lot more than that. And I said, oh, yeah. He said, but what about this? I've had this idea for a few years to do a book about blokes who get into trouble purely because uh, – of uh, their uh, lower extremities, yeah, and uh, yeah. <laughs> and I said, "Well, uh, I think you've come to the right guy." And, <laughs> and uh, so we, we got started. I got started on it, and was sort of stumbling along, finding bits here. And I thought, "Well, I've got to have a, a hall of shame for you know mainly sports people and showbiz blokes who, who have done idiotic things." And, and I thought, "Well, we need a bit more than that. We need to sort of try and work out some link as to why men." Do behave so stupidly a lot of the time, and and we do. We always have. Yeah. Probably always will. And um, I discovered this big creature called the bonobo, which is you know a chimp that's found in a a part of the Congo in dark, deepest Africa. And uh, they're they're a funny sort of uh, creature. They 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 live in big uh, groups, but they're obsessed with sex and violence, and and often at the same time. So they're the sort of group of bonobos. That I'll get together and have a massive orgy together and then punch on afterwards. As you do. And, I thought, and they share 98.7% of uh, our male DNA. So I thought, I'm going to link this and make an excuse that for men behaving stupidly that we share the bonobo gene. Now, I have no scientific knowledge to back this up. It's purely just a stupid um, uh, theory. But when you look into it, it sort of kind of works. It so you, does, you know. <laughs> you know, as I say, they they, they they enjoy a bit of a romp and, and, a, and a punch on, and uh, and they walk upright, and and they actually communicate verbally, which is you know something a lot of footballers don't, and <laughs> and uh, they just. Um, I sort of linked it to the bonobo gene, and, and sort of took it from there. And then once once you once I discovered that once you. Uh, you sort of dig into the, the research of of stupid male behaviour. It is an unlimited resource, really. It's, and, it's, uh, we're,
0: it's a, we're a minefield that just uh, that keeps on giving, aren't we?
3: Oh, exactly. I mean, there's, um, a mate said, he said if you're going to do a whole of shame of, of stupid sports people, that, that's not a little book. That's that's a 28-volume encyclopedia, really. Yep, absolutely. And, and, uh, and so I just sort of looked into that and then you did, discover other sorts of things and then look at the history and, and like, you know, I, I put a lot of its bad behaviour down to Steve Jobs because, you know, <laughs> he's, is. he's the man who, who introduced the iPhone um, and when, when he introduced it to everyone, you know, he explained all the features and what have you and how it's so easy to use. Uh, the one thing he didn't explain, though, who what he should, is that uh, you can actually take a picture of your private parts and send it to uh, everybody within a ten metre radius at the touch of a button, and uh, and that I think has, has been a major influence on on the proliferation of uh, you know genital photography. Yep, and it's always blokes who do it.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, it is, and it has been. You go, you go back to the uh, to the Romans, and and they were putting it up on walls. I mean, it's not, it's yeah, not it, exactly. exactly. Your, your the, teenage the, sons and his mates think they invented it, but it actually goes way back before that.
3: Oh yeah, exactly. they, they didn't even have textures back then; <laughs> it was just fresco. <laughs> so, so yeah, putting put the old digging uh, balls on, on a wall. Uh, it started with the ancient Romans, and the Greeks were pretty good at it as well. Yep, and, and a lot of other when you look into it, ancient civilizations that uh, have used it as you know as some sort of graffiti motive as well. So it, it has been around for thousands of years. I think just uh, with technology these days, uh, we've perfected it, you know.
0: You, uh, you go so. to some interesting places uh, with the book. Uh, Lorena Bobbitt, uh, her, her appearance in the book uh, surprised me. You've got a, a man who had uh, – uh, can can only describe this in one possible way? A man who had a penis uh, on his arm because of uh, yeah. uh, an accident that he had. Um, yep. You've you've got a Greek god that uh, that changes sex every time he whacks a snake on the head because they're copulating in front of you. Yep. This book does go down some very interesting avenues, Steve.
3: Well, I t- I'll tell you what, Kev, your uh, Google is pretty handy. Isn't it? <laughs> you know, I was just looking around one day and I, I saw an article that said, the man with a penis on his arm, as you <laughs> said, and, uh, and exactly that's what happened. He, he you know, he had a, a sort of a, an unfortunate medical episode, and, and it had dropped off. So they they uh, created a new one and attached it to his arm, and so it grew ready to put back. And then COVID hit, and so it was stuck on his arm for two years.
0: <laughs> it's just, just a minor hiccup, <laughs> you know. A well, minor hiccup.
3: As, as he said, you know, occasionally just went laughing, he'd go to the pub and he pretty put his darts
0: under it. Yes. You know? <laughs> yes. But you also delve into the animal kingdom, which with great fascination is to, um, you know, the uh, the sex lives of dolphins, echidnas, whales, the Argentine and, blue duck that I wasn't aware of until this book.
3: Yeah, and the octopus, you know. There's, yes. there's a breed of octopus that uh, they actually remove um, their, their penis and throw it at the female. Yeah, as you but, do. You know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, which I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure there'd be some blokes who would try the same thing here if it was, you know, available to them. You wouldn't want to suggest it to them, they'd actually try it.
0: No, exactly right, uh, exactly right. Uh, and you, you delve into, you know, some of the areas of the of the, the showbiz and entertainment uh, industry that you've been involved in Perfect Match and a few of those uh, those things. Yeah. <laughs> the, oh, yeah. The Perfect Match story of the uh, the elderly couple in Adelaide, I must admit, made me laugh out loud.
3: Oh, yeah, well, yeah, just to recap that, that was true. After Perfect Match made me going for a few years, it had started to, the ratings taper off a little bit. So um, some bright spark at gruddies thought, instead of using good-looking young couples, we'll, we'll use some older people as well, you know. Older people want to find love just as much as youngsters. So they, uh, there, there was a, a woman you know, in her 60s or 70s who was matched up with a bloke in her, his late 70s. And they were sent off to Adelaide for, you know, a nice fun weekend to get to know each other. And um, on the first night she was there, she rang up the executive producer of Perfect Match and said, you've got to send me a new man. He's died. <laughs> so her date her date had passed away during, uh, you know, I'd like to think it was just after dinner. Yeah. But um, uh, she was pretty keen to get a new one on the board straight away. Well, yes. as we pointed out, I think at his funeral, Dexter did the uh, eulogy. Yes. So uh,
0: <laughs> um, it's uh, it's now you, you're going to turn this into a into a, an ongoing series with any with any luck, and uh, hopefully contributions from people who pick this book up and then uh, go to your website.
3: Yeah, exactly. We're, we've got a website; it's just about um, good to go at the moment. The books just sort of hit the shelves. Um, we're going to have the dot com because. The thing I've found that since I've written the book and spoken to people, mainly just friends, is that as soon as you mention this, everybody's got a story about their dumb behavior. It doesn't have to involve your genitals. It can be just something dumb you did like, you know, many years ago. Um, and everyone's got a story. So I'm I'm just throwing it out there for people to send me their stories of dumb behavior and stupid, you know, things that they've done in their life. And, uh, Send them to me, and we'll put them in the next one into Bonobo Two, and hopefully a bit of a series. Yes. As, um, as Trevor Marmalade said to me, he said, "Oh, you, you could have ten volumes of this stuff, you know, once you get going." Yes, so uh, I hopefully that that'll be down the track.
0: Between footy trips and bucks parties, and uh, and just and just general life, uh, uh, this is an absolute uh, bottomless pit.
3: Oh, it is indeed. I mean, you know, just the other day I was. I was uh, talking to a mate of mine who uh, shall remain nameless, but he's the, he's the chief executive of a very big merchant bank. And uh, he said, oh, he said, you didn't put in that time that, you know, I stuck my ass out the car window at a <laughs> car full of cops, did you? you know, no, when did you do that? He said, oh, when I was 18. I said, yeah, of course. I said, We've all done that sort of, sort of thing. And uh, uh, one thing I've found, if you, if you want to get a, a whole lot of great examples of bad behaviour, Talk to a few lawyers.
0: Yeah, right? yes. <laughs> they're
3: pretty good at it.
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, so that's fine anyway.
3: Yeah.
0: Uh, so, any other style of book that you want to do apart from uh, continuing the series of this one, Steve?
3: Well, yeah, I, I want to revisit the, the memoir. Now I've had a bit of advice on it. There's still, again, there's a lot of great stories in there from working in radio. I mean, you and I go way back. to the Radio station. Know. And, uh, you know, TV shows and TV stations and working with, you know, meeting meeting some, you know, incredibly famous people I was lucky enough to do, you know, when I was at Channel 10. And, and uh, you know, I think I think probably my favourite that I ever met was Mel Blank, you know, the, the voice of Bugs Bunny. Oh, uh, yeah,
0: Gunner. gee whiz.
3: We, oh, well, I'll tell you a story. I, I was, he was out here for the Logies and I somehow managed to weasel my way into a dinner for him at the Flower Drum uh, in the city in Melbourne. And uh, we go in there, and as the waiters, they're all they're all sort of you know lurking around, and and old Mr. Blank, as we called him, he said, "Oh, do you mind if I order?" And I said, "Sure, go right ahead." And then he proceeded. It was obviously an old party trick of his. He managed to get a bunch of waiters together, and he ordered like lots of things off the menu. But as every character that he did, from Daffy Duck oh. to Yosemite Sam to Foghorn Leghorn to Bugs Bunny. Everybody, you know, just, no, you wanted fried rice from this, and you wanted, you know, pork ribs, (laughs) no, and he just ripped it out for about 20 minutes, and I sat there in absolute awe of this uh, great old man, and uh, there's there's plenty of things, I mean, you've been saying both, I mean, some of the great rock stars met over the journey, and, and, uh, you know, we've all done that, and, you know, I guess, you know, it's a bit self-indulgent at times, but, uh, if you can get that thing down on paper uh, in a reasonably uh, entertaining manner, that'll be probably the next next project I want to work on.
0: Well, I reckon you'll be pretty busy with volumes 2 to 452 of, uh, <laughs> of the bonobo oh, genes.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Well, that's the plan, at least.
0: Congrats on the book. Well done. And uh, many more to come, I have absolutely no doubt.
3: Thank you, Kevin. Great to talk to you.
0: It is a very entertaining book, and as I said, I have no doubt there will be volume after volume after volume. So have a look at the first one, and you too will see why. Uh, it'll probably become a regular part of your reading over the over the next few years. My thanks to Steve. My thanks to Rod Willis. Uh, both those books are readily available, and, of course, uh, it's been terrific to have them for both gentlemen on the podcast. With thanks to my podcast partners, CSCG. As I said, over the Christmas and New Year period, they will be closed, but opening up in 2024, and they're the people to talk to to make sure that 2024 is the financial journey that you want to be on. Give them a call, 9974 8333 or check out their website, cscg.com.au. Till the next time, I'm Kevin Hillier. Check out uh, back episodes of uh, The Authorised Podcast, some terrific authors that we've talked to. Uh, Read a book over the holiday period and I'll talk to you again soon in 2024.